Chapter 5 First, give me your blessing, Mr. Albin, said Marjorie, kneeling down before him in the hall in front of them all. She was as pale as a ghost, but her eyes shone like stars. It was a couple of months after his leaving Chartley before he came at last to Booth's Edge. First he had had to bestow Mr. Arnold in Lancashire, for suspicion was abroad, and it was a letter from Marjorie herself, reaching him in Derby at Mr. Bedell's house, that had told him of it, and bidden him go on with his friend. The town had never been the same since Topcliffe's visit, and now that Babington House was no longer in safe Catholic hands, a great protection was gone. He had better go on, she said, as if he were what he professed to be, a gentleman traveling with his servant. A rumor had come to her ears that the talk in the town was of the expected arrival of a new priest to take Mr. Garlick's place for the present, and every stranger was scrutinized. So he had taken her advice. He had left Derby again immediately, and had slowly traveled north. Then, coming round about from the north, after leaving his friend, saying mass here and there where he could, crossing into Yorkshire even as far west as Wakefield, he had come at last, through this wet November day, along the Derwent Valley and up to Booth's Edge, where he arrived after sunset, to find the hall filled with folks to greet him. He was smiling himself, though his eyes were full of tears, by the time he had done giving his blessings. Mr. John Fitzherbert was come up from Padley, where he lived now for short times together, grayer than ever, but with the same resolute face. Mistress Alice Babington was there, still serene-looking, but with a new sorrow in her eyes, and, clinging to her, a thin, pale girl all in black, who only two months before had lost both daughter and husband. For the child had died scarcely a week or two before her father, Anthony Babington, had died miserably on the gallows near St. Giles' Field, where he had so often met his friends after dark. It was a ghastly tale, told in fragments to Robin here and there during his journeyings by men in taverns before whom he must keep a brave face. And a few farmers were there, old Mr. Merton among them, come in to welcome the son of the squire of Matstead, returned under a feigned name, unknown even to his father. And there, too, was honest Dick Sampson, come up from Dethick to see his old master. So here, in the hall he knew so well, himself splashed with red marl from ankle to shoulder, still cloaked and spurred, one by one these knelt before him, beginning with Marjorie herself, and ending with the youngest farm boy, who breathed heavily as he knelt down and got up, round-eyed and staring. "'And his reverence will hear confessions,' proclaimed Marjorie to the multitude, "'at eight o'clock tonight, and he will say Mass and give Holy Communion at six o'clock tomorrow morning.' He had to hear that night, after supper, and before he went to keep his engagement in the chapel, the entire news of the county, and, in his turn, to tell his own adventures. The company sat together before the great hall fire, to take the dessert, since there would have been no room in the parlor for all who wished to hear. He heard the tale of Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert, traitor, apostate, and sworn man of her grace, later, when he had come down again from the chapel room and the servants had gone. But now it was of less tragic matters, and more triumphant, that they talked. He told of his adventures since he had landed in August of his riding in Lancashire and Yorkshire, and of the fervor that he met with there. In one place, he said, he had reconciled the old minister of the parish that had been made priest under Mary thirty years ago, and now lay dying. But he said nothing at that time of what he had seen of her grace of Scotland, and Chartley, and the rest, on the other hand, talked of what had passed in Derby, of all that Mr. Ludlam and Mr. Garlick had done, of the arrest and banishment of the latter, and his immediate return, of the hanging of Mr. Francis Ingleby, in York, which had made a great stir in the North that summer, since he was the son of Sir Francis of Ripley Castle as well as of the deaths of many others, Mr. Finglow in August, Mr. Sanders in the same month in Gloucester, and of Mr. Lowe, Mr. Adams, and Mr. Dibdale, all together at Tyburn, the news of which had but just come to Derbyshire, and of Mistress Clitheroe, that had been pressed to death in York for the very crime which Mistress Marjorie Manners was perpetrating at this moment, namely, the assistance in harborage of priests, or, rather, for refusing to plead when she had been arrested for that crime, lest she should bring them into trouble. 
and then at last they began to speak of Mary and Fotheringay, and at that a maid came in to say that it was eight o'clock, and would his reverence come up, as a few had to travel home that night and to come again next day. It was after nine o'clock before he came downstairs again, to find the gentlefolk alone in the little parlor that opened from the hall. It gave him a strange thrill of pleasure to see them there in the firelight, the four of them only, Mr. John in the midst with the three ladies, and an empty chair waiting for the priest. He would hear their confessions presently when the servants were gone to bed. A great mug of warm ale stood by his place to comfort him after his long ride and his spiritual labors. Mr. John told him first the news of his own son, as was his duty to do, and he told it without bitterness, in a level voice, leaning his cheek on his hand. It appeared that Mr. Thomas still passed for a Catholic among the simpler folk, but with none else. All the great houses round about had the truth as an open secret, and their doors were closed to him. Neither had any priest been near him since the day when Mr. Simpson met him alone on the moors and spoke to him of his soul. Even then Mr. Thomas had blustered and declared that there was no truth in the tale, and had so ridden away at last, saying that such pestering was enough to make a man lose his religion altogether. "'As for me,' said Mr. John, "'he has not been near me, nor I near him. He lives at Norbury for the most part. My brother is attempting to set aside the disposition he had made in his favor, but they say it will be made to stand, and that my son will get it all yet. But he has not troubled us at Padley, nor will he, I think.' "'He is at Norbury, you say, sir?' Yes, but he goes here and there continually. He has been to London to lay informations, I have no doubt, for I know he hath been seen there in Topcliffe's company. It seems that we are to be in the thick of the conflict. We have had above a dozen priests in this county alone arraigned for treason, and the most of them executed. His voice had gone lower, and trembled once or twice as he talked. It was plain that he could not bear to speak much more against the son that had turned against him and his faith, for the sake of his own liberty and the estates he had hoped to have. Robin made haste to turn the talk. And my father, sir? Mr. John looked at him tenderly. "'You must ask Mistress Marjorie of him,' he said. "'I have not seen him these three years.' Robin turned to the girl. "'I have had no more news of him since what I wrote to you,' she said quietly. "'After I had spoken with him, and he had given me the warning, he held himself aloof.' "'Hath he been at any of the trials at Derby?' She bowed her head. "'He was at the trial of Mr. Garlick,' she said, "'last year, and was one of those who spoke for his banishment.' And then, on a sudden, Mistress Alice moved in her corner, where she sat with the widow of her brother. "'And what of her grace?' she said. "'Is it true what Dick told us before supper, that Parliament hath sentenced her?' Robin shook his head. "'I hear so much gossip,' he said, "'in the taverns, that I believe nothing. I had not heard that. Tell me what it was.' He was in a torment of mind as to what he should say of his own adventure at Chartley. On the one side it was plain that no rumor of the tale must get abroad, or he would never be able to come to her again. On the other side, no word had come from Mr. Burgoyne, though two months had passed. He knew indeed what all the world knew by now, that a trial had been held by over forty lords in Fotheringay Castle, whither the Queen had been moved at the end of September, and that reports had been sent of it to London. But for the rest he knew no more than the others. Tales ran about the country on every side. One man would say that he had it from London direct that Parliament had sentenced her, another that the Queen of England had given her consent too, a third that Parliament had not dared to touch the matter at all a fourth that Elizabeth had pardoned her. But for Robin, his hesitation largely lay in his knowledge that it was on the Babington plot that all would turn, and that this would have been the chief charge against her. And here, but a yard away from him, in the gloom of the chimney-breast, sat Anthony's wife and sister. How could he say that this was so, and yet that he believed her wholly innocent of a crime which he detested? He had dreaded this talk the instant that he had seen them in the hall and heard their names. But Mistress Alice would not be put off. She repeated what she had said. Dick had come up from Dethick only that afternoon, and was now gone again, so that he could not be questioned. 
but he had told his mistress plainly that the story in Derby, brought in by couriers, was that Parliament had consented and had passed sentence on Her Grace, that Her Grace herself had received the news only the day before, but that the warrant was not signed. "'And on what charge?' asked Robin desperately. Mistress Alice's voice rang out proudly, but he saw her press the girl closely as she spoke. "'That she was privy to the plot which my—' My brother had a hand in. Then Robin drew a breath and decided. It may be so, he said, but I do not believe she was privy to it. I spoke with her grace at Chartley. There was a swift movement in the half-circle. I spoke with her grace at Chartley, he said. I went to her under guise of an herbalist. I heard her confession and gave her communion, and she declared publicly before two witnesses after she had had communion that she was guiltless. Robin was no storyteller. But for half an hour he was forced to become one, until his hearers were satisfied. Even here, in the distant hills, Mary's name was a key to a treasure house of mysteries. It was through this country, too, that she had passed again and again. It was at Old Chatsworth, the square house with the huge Italian and Dutch gardens that a Cavendish had bought thirty years ago from the Aggards, that she had passed part of her captivity. It was in Derby that she had halted for a night last year. It was near Burton that she had slept two months ago on her road to Fotheringay, and to hear now of her from one who had spoken to her that very autumn was as a revelation. So Robin told it as well as he could. "'And it may be,' he said, "'that I shall have to go again. Mr. Burgoyne said that he would send to me if he could. But I have heard no word from him.' He glanced round the watching faces. "'And I need not say that I shall hear no word at all if the tale I have told you leak out.' "'Perhaps she hath a chaplain again,' said Mr. John, after a pause. "'I do not think so,' said the priest." If she had none at Chartley, she would all the less have one at Fotheringay. "'And it may be you will be sent for again?' asked Marjorie's voice gently from the darkness. "'It may be so,' said the priest. "'The letter is to be sent here?' she asked. "'I told Mr. Burgoyne so. "'Does any other know you are here?' "'No, Mistress Marjorie.' There was a pause. "'It is growing late,' said Mr. John. "'Will your reverence go upstairs with me, and these ladies will come after, I think?' If it had been a great day for Robin that he should come back to his own country after six years and be received in this house of strange memories, that he should sit upstairs as a priest and hear confessions in that very parlor where nearly seven years ago he had sat with Marjorie as her accepted lover, if all this had been charged to him with emotions and memories which, however he had outgrown them, yet echoed somewhere wonderfully in his mind, it was no less a kind of climax and consummation to the girl whose house this was and who had waited so long to receive back a lover who came now in so different a guise. But it must be made plain that to neither of them was there a thought or a memory that ought not to be. To those who hold that men are no better, except for their brains, than other animals, that they are but, after all, bundles of sense from which all love and aspiration take their rise, to such the thing will seem simply false. They will say that it was not so, that all that strange yearning that Marjorie had to see the man back again, that the excitement that beat in Robin's heart as he had ridden up the well-remembered slope, all in the dark, and had seen the lighted windows at the top, that these were but the old loves in the disguise of piety. But to those who understand what priesthood is, for him that receives it and for the soul that reverences it, the thing is a truism. For the priest was one who loved Christ more than all the world, and the woman one who loved priesthood more than herself. Yet her memories of him that had remained in her had, of course, a place in her heart. And though she knelt before him presently in the little parlor where once he had kneeled before her, as simply as a child before her father, and told her sins and received Christ's pardon, and went away to make room for the next, though all this was without a reproach in her eyes, Yet, as she went, she knew that she must face a fresh struggle, and a temptation that would not have been one-tenth so fierce if it had been some other priest that was in peril. That peril was Fotheringay, where, as she knew well enough, every strange face would be scrutinized, as perhaps nowhere else in all England. And that temptation lay in the knowledge that when that letter should come, as she knew in her heart it would come, 
It would be through her hands that it would pass, if it passed indeed. While the others went to the priest one by one, Marjorie kneeled in her room, fighting with a devil that was not yet come to her, as is the way with sensitive consciences. 